listen to Stick to Wrestling twice on the day that it comes out. Hi, my name is John McAdam. Thank you for listening to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. There are a lot of good wrestling podcasts out there, but is there any other one that's wicked good? No! It's only this one, and we thank you for listening. Stick to wrestling and give us 60 minutes, and we will perhaps indeed give you a Raw Bone podcast. Before I forget again, please feel free to follow me on Twitter. It's uh, John McAdam. Just put in the name, search the name, and pick the guy with the avatar with the guys hitting each other with chairs. I am going to bring on my convivial co-host, John Goodwin. Sean, I'm going to throw a curveball at your strike zone because I was thinking about something. Um, you're you're a huge fan of Tully Blanchard, right? Yes. Okay. Un- unapologetic, huge fan of Tully Blanchard. Sean, what if EC? What if Tully had wanted to be the the a top guy in ECW in 1994? How do you think that would have unfolded? Beautifully. I mean, to me, beyond beautifully. Um, who would you say the top guy in ECW history is, not besides Heyman? I'm not saying his name. Uh, I'll say Taz. Okay, I think it's a toss-up between Shane Douglas and Taz. I'm if not I, saying the former's name, so it's got to be Taz. <laughs> I'll say it. I'll say it for you. You think it's either Shane Douglas or Taz? I give Shane. No, Douglas, I didn't say that. I think it's Taz. Yeah, I think you're saying it without saying it. Well, I would anyway, be in that category. But go ahead. I would say Shane slight lead over Taz, but if Tully had wanted it, and clearly he didn't care that much, he was over forty. He you know was kind of over the wrestling business. I think he would have been the clear number one. I think he would have been the heel that, or he would have been a baby face, but he would have acted like the old Tully Blanchard of eighty five, eighty six, and the ECW audience would have would have eaten it up. Tully, you can put Tully on Jupiter and Tully's getting heat. Okay, he just, I mean, you can, when Rick and Tully and all those guys are far away, then sure, the ECW fans are going to make all their little jokes and stuff like that. But if any one of those guys actually showed up, you know, that would be an entirely different story. I think Tully just with his, Tully understands, he has that wonderful psychology with crowds where he just is able to kind of absorb that crowd real fast and understand what's going to aggravate the hell out of them the fastest. And he has absolutely no fear about this whatsoever. Uh, I think he, I think Tully Blanchard, if he puts his mind to it, is getting over as a heel wherever he wants to, whenever he wants to. I think he would have been. I think he would have been their top baby face by being the exact same heel that he was back in the day. That, that's just oh, my yeah. theory. I mean, yeah, but then you could you could do the then you could turn him around and do the Mick Foley deal. You know, where they had Mick Foley start to play mind games with the crowd by, you know, kind of overplaying his, you know, doing those, uh, trying to educate the fans on real wrestling and doing the opposite of the stereotype for the sole purpose of aggravating the fans, which which worked. Which worked. I mean, he had some of the greatest promos in wrestling history during that run. But um, I think, too, if Tully had, you know, he would have had to sacrifice. I think especially in the beginning, he would have needed to have moved to Metro Philly in order to make the whole thing work, which I don't think he would have wanted to do. But I mean, and and this if, if he had gone to ECW, that 
could have been the, I think it would have been the thing that got him back in the game as far as having a job with either the WWF oh, yeah. or WCW. Oh, they by, were hiring everybody. By, yeah, if he if he like keeps his nose clean and everything looks good and he's hitting his dates, I think that's what everyone would be looking at because everyone knows Tully can get over. That's not the concern. The concern is everything else. Now, if Tully's like in a place for say eight or nine months, and you know he's doing well, he's hitting, showing up at his dates, you know everything's working. Now I'm sitting, you know, you guys are like, okay, we know he can work, and we know he's going to get over. But you now it's it's like Buddy Landell. If Buddy Landell's head's right, Buddy Landell's fantastic. But I mean, more often than not, Tully's head's right. You know, Tully's right. But I mean, those the extracurriculars can be an issue, and they have been with him in the past. Uh, I think, you know, I, I don't think you really did this. I think you can't compare Tully Blanchard to. No, 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 no. I don't mean that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm I mean, just saying Tully that. always made his dates. That, that was never an issue. The issue was that he failed a drug test, which was not exactly independently administered. Yeah. And it's, uh, which tells me they needed to get rid of him for some other reason. Well, they were pissed off at him. That's what I'm That's saying. Basically okay. it. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Tully, Tully. Okay, how do I? But he has had a reputation in locker rooms in the past as being difficult. Um, not you know what? Not before really? the end of the WWF run, uh, and maybe towards the end of Dusty's run. I know he and Dusty were not on the best of terms, but right. But anyway. that's what, then why else isn't Tully getting a gig afterwards? Because he always could work. Um. It, I mean, we're talking about Jim Hurd and Vince McMahon here. He was not immediately going back to the WWF, and him and Jim Hurd were stuck in that contract dispute that you know was never ending. I think him in one place for eight months getting over would be too much for either one of them to resist. Uh, I mean, like uh, WWF didn't need him, and WCW just weren't wasn't willing to pay him what it cost. In '96, they didn't need him. But that's what I'm saying. Like, if he had been in, like, there were guys in WCW, okay? We're talking 97, 98, 99, 2000. Their job was to walk to the mailbox and pick up a check. Like, Eric Bischoff would hire guys just to keep them away from the WWF. Guys like Bobby Eaton, who probably worked two television tapings a month, and that was it for 100 a year. The WWF, I'm looking at because they had a lot of turnover in their roster and they were getting very young. So I think a nice veteran presence would have worked well there. Yeah, I, I you know looking back, I am really surprised that Tully didn't get into that, that yeah. whole Eric Bischoff paying guys between 150 and 250 grand a year to basically do nothing. Because that's totally what I'm saying. Something like has. That. That's why I'm saying something has to be going on here that we don't know. Maybe, maybe just Tully didn't want to do it, or yeah. he just moved on in his life. But whatever. Um. So I need to get out of your way and let you plug our Facebook group. So the the insanity is the Facebook group because uh, if you're there this past week, you're seeing uh, you're 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 finding these of uh, these important questions in life are getting answered. Why is Gordon Soley flipping through a photo album in 1966? Does David Letterman have an obsession with Bobby Heenan? How Dick the Bruiser was named after a character from Shakespeare? Was Bill Mercer really that bad? What does Bob Geilgo really think of Bob Brown? Why should we care about Grandma Bees? And did Bob Backlund win 40 years ago? All this results, pictures, clips, links. It's like a wrestling Valhalla, except you don't have to die in Viking battle. There you go. 
also, uh, just to add to the fun, this week we had a what I thought was a really high-level conversation regarding what if Bill Watts had been the guy uh, to go head-to-head against Vince McMahon. It was a really – a lot of really great facts were presented and a lot of great opinions were presented. It was a really, really good thread. Yeah, no, it absolutely was. We've had this discussion here. Yes. Um, and I, I, I just think he was the most ready for prime time out of those guys. As, as far as being – Crockett still had a kind of a southern feel, which they had a difficulty shaking. Dusty wasn't doing them any favors with those musical acts. Uh, but Watts seemed more national. He seemed more kind of mainstream because, I mean, the, look at the guys who went, uh, went up north from him. They all were successful for the most part because oh, yeah. they had that kind of national feel you know, to them. So that was like the, the worst thing that could have happened was the economy tanking on him right then because, yeah, I, he would have been the main competitor. Uh, he would have had to get cable, but, I mean, yeah, he would have been. I mean, I think he would have got TBS. When well he I mean he had he almost got it in eighty five yep. I don't know when he yep. would have, when he would have gotten on TBS with Crockett already on there but it's I'm funny. saying he could have pulled it off then if everything went right ah, I mean that's the thing everything not, something right. I mean, something always goes wrong but it's funny in eighty eight starting in 1988 like the, the the telephone used to be the original message board the original facebook group and i mean certainly not a week went by starting in 88 and ending in 92 when i was on the phone with someone who was talking about why don't they bring in bill watts meaning uh, wcw uh, and starting in 1990, certainly not a week went by until I would say around 92 when someone was like, you know, what's going on with Tully Blanchard? When's he coming to WCW? But anyway, we want to well in advance, wish everyone and their family a very happy Thanksgiving. Uh, and we're going to drop about a week before Thanksgiving. So you will have a week to absorb all of the Thanksgiving Day cards we will be discussing on this upcoming podcast. In our defense, on uh, at least as far as Northeast fans go, uh, the Thanksgiving wrestling thing never took off in the in the Northeast. So the cards you're going to see from uh, from the WWF are going to be less than awesome. Uh, that would be okay, but this that kind of super card thing never really took hold up here. No, it did not. I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to discuss that with you, and it wasn't in my notes, so I would have forgotten. The idea of – now, tell me if, if this was the case in your household, Sean. The idea of going to a wrestling show – let's say they had, they had a huge wrestling extravaganza at the Boston Garden Thanksgiving night every year in the 70s and 80s. I mean me and my friends, my wrestling friends, we looked at each other and been like, that's crazy. We can't go to wrestling on Thanksgiving Day or Thanksgiving night. It's the way it always seemed to work was you'd have the high school game in the morning, and it'd be early. It'd be like eight. Um, Up here, and it was you'd 11. have like yeah, but I mean, it'd be okay, I'm exaggerating. Maybe like ten, but I mean, <laughs> it was crazy early, and you'd be back by one. You'd be eating, you know, and the night was forget about it. You know, just leave me alone. 
So the uh, yeah, I, the idea of actually going out on Thanksgiving it just it's weird, I guess. I mean, in college you did it, but that was just because you had the rare kind of day off afterwards. Um, but yeah, it, it's I, they always kind of surprised me when I found out how big it was. So it, I just wanted to explain when you get to the, when we get to the WWF cards on this list here, it, it, it's not going to look like a supercard because it wasn't meant to be. I mean, I would look at the Dallas Cowboys and Detroit Lions host a football game every Thanksgiving day. And then mm-hmm. from day one, I would look at that and think, you know, me going just going to a football game on Thanksgiving is crazy. And then, well, you know, when I was high school, I was playing. So you had to go. But it got, like I said, it got out, got out early enough where, you know, it didn't matter that much. And like I said, to me, we, you know, we always did something big on Thanksgiving night. Uh, it was pardon. It was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving night are like major party nights in the United States. And we would always find something to do. There would always be something to do. And it wouldn't involve going to a wrestling show. But things are different in other parts of the country. You're either. Yeah, you're either hanging out with your family or recovering from hanging out with your family. <laughs> I was not hanging out with my family, but anyway. So you were recovering from hanging out from your, with your family. So there yeah, you go. good point. There's a good way to look at it. So the biggest Thanksgiving show in the land, obviously, I don't know if it's obviously, but I, I knew about it long before I knew about the other ones, was in Atlanta. Let me, okay, now I'm going to throw a curveball back at you. All right. uh, who invented the Thanksgiving Super Show? Was it Crockett or was it Georgia? I think it was definitely Georgia. I think I think Georgia was definitely first. Now I'm Georgia, not sure. I can't say I'm sure, but I'd bet on it. Georgia comically would, uh, for some bizarre reason, have the tag team titles get stripped from whoever. You know, every every year this happened. I was actually looking up some of the old ones. In 1980, it was part of the four flat tire incident that they stripped him. In 78, which was still my favorite, Ole and Stan got disqualified too many times. So I guess old Sandy showed up and said, <laughs> no, just in time for Thanksgiving, thankfully. Uh, they did the same. Um, uh, and the angle here was when Ole turned face and him and Lad had to split up, which was the setup for the big turn against Dusty in the cage. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which is basically the same angle they did with Ole and T-Bowl five years later. So every that was like a tradition. Every year they would somehow figure out how to get the championship held up, and you would have a tag team tournament on Thanksgiving night for the for the championships and for a cash prize. Yeah, it was usually for the championships. Once in a blue moon, it wasn't, but there was like a stretch from like the late seventies to the you know eighty two, eighty something like that. That every year they somehow managed to do this. Yeah, well, and, there's no need for it. They didn't do that in the cro- for the Crockett Cup. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they just could have had some goofy number prize on it, like they did for the million dollars for Dusty and uh, for uh, Dusty and Rick that one time. But they, that's what that's the way they did it. So, and it, it, it seemed to work. I mean, if they didn't work, they wouldn't run it every year. Exactly. And this year, this is the last roundup for the Bobby Heenan crew, which we discussed in another show that they were there partially because Vern was investing. Okay, yeah, that. Well, I mean, Bobby thought he was there permanently. I mean, I told the the story on the show before. Excuse me, Oli told him. Go out and buy a house. You're going to be here as long as as you want to. Move your family down there. And as soon as he did that, Ole basically told him to get lost. That's Heenan's side of the story, at least. Uh, it doesn't sound unlike. No, unlike I, I throw. 
So in 79, you were at the Omni, uh, November 22nd, 12,000, of course. And we, we talked about this uh, with the show prior to this last week. Uh, when we were mentioning the 83 Omni show between the um, uh, the, 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 the rich and um, the, the rich and Sawyer blow off and this. And you had this poor card, which was perfectly fine, stuck in the Omni between those, this card and that card, you know. I mean, this is a different year, but I'm saying the Thanksgiving card, and that's that that card got killed in this case, yeah. in that case. But that was part of the what we're discussing there. In this case, you again have the Georgia Championship, and it, they also were an early example. They and Shire did it too in San Francisco, but bringing in outside guys to give the show a big feel. Mm-hmm. Um, you have Jack and Jerry Briscoe. You have Bobby Jaggers, Lou Graham, uh, Ricky now, Field. Graham is- Graham and Jaggers were there. Um, uh, we're in Georgia at this point, full time. And I think this was a very interesting tag team because Luke Graham clearly is on his way out and Bobby Jaggers is on his way up. And two wild men, too, weren't they? Uh, I mean- Jaggers, not as much. Jaggers was more of like a, a vicious hitman type than a wild man. I meant off. I meant in like. Oh, they were, part- they were party guys. Oh, yeah. I once heard the greatest story about Bobby Jaggers. He goes into a bar, goes up to a girl and says, oh, you know, this this bar must be where all the celebrities around here hang out. I mean, you must be a model. I'm Bobby Jaggers, number one contender for the NWA title. <laughs> this is in Florida, I assume. Uh, I don't know where it was. It was, it was probably in San Antonio. Well, that, yeah, yeah, true, true. I didn't even think of that. Uh, and come Coming up, we have Austin Idol and the Mass Superstar over Stan Hansen and Wahoo McDaniel. Stan just turned face recently. Yes, he did. And he's, I mean, talk, I don't want to spoil it. I mean, it happened 40 years ago, but I mean, talk about what a night for Austin Idol and Mass Superstar. They come out and they beat a tag team with starting off two Hall of Fame legends, Stan Hansen and Wahoo McDaniel. It's. And again, Stan just to turn Stan, his face is funny. It just it's it. He's good, but it's it seems disappointing because he's such a crazy, wild, fun heel. Uh, and you're like, why? I, I, I like cheering Stan just because I cheer Stan when he's a heel anyway. And now I'm supposed to. So it's good. But yeah, that's a that is that's a way to put them over early. Uh, do you remember what the match was like at all? I, I've never seen any of these matches, to be honest with you. I don't think they were. I don't know if they were. I'm sure. I'm sure they were not televised in their entirety. But um, I was. I don't think I've ever been more shocked by wrestling that when when I picked up a magazine and saw that Stan Hansen was now a good guy. How can he be a good guy? He's the guy who broke Bruno San Martino's neck. Well, yeah, true. Yeah, if you're in New York, absolutely. And again, Oldie was going to tr- uh, flip right after him too. Uh, you know, just set up that, oh, that just, oh, it's all, only as a baby face is just painful. I just can't get past it. Um, and so, uh, we also have, uh, in the first round, Tony Atlas, Ray Candy over Ox Baker and Killer Khan, the immobile team, the immobile duo. Yeah, really? I mean, Killer Khan wasn't too bad. Yeah, Khan Uh, can move a little bit back then. It wasn't that bad yet. 
he yeah, he was he was never that bad. And Ox Baker, you're right, he was immobile. Ray Ray Candy and Tony Atlas weren't exactly the most mobile guys out there. I you know, I had a guy ask me a question on Twitter, which you should, you should follow me on. Like, what if the WWF brought in Killer Khan in '86 and put him in the WrestleMania main event? And I was a little bit taken aback by it because. I never saw him as that big a star. I was actually a little bit surprised that he went around the horn with Hogan in 87, even though it drew and they were good matches. I mean, not for a minute in like 85 or 86 was I saying, gee, you know, uh, the NWA or or Mid-South should bring in Killer Khan. I had more or less completely forgotten about the guy. And before it sounds like I'm being too negative on Khan, I loved him in Japan with uh, Choshu. Yes. Uh, okay, Here, here's one of my favorites. Dusty and Mr. Wrestling 2, who ha- has zero chance of winning this. Uh, again, this is, this is a WWF thinking. Okay, if I see a team like this, it's like the Backland and you know, Morales thing when they were in uh, against the Samoans. You look at it that you're like, there's no chance they're going to win. But I remember we talked about this on another show, and a bunch of our Southern fans were like, oh, no, we would believe a match like this that you could have a title change. It's just yeah, a different thinking. It really is. I mean, and earlier this year, in 1979, in the Superdome, Bill Watts and Dusty Rhodes won some tournament. So you're thinking, you know, this is like, oh, no, no, let me take that back. Andre the Giant and Dusty Rhodes won a tournament for the titles. Of course, they didn't keep the titles, but man, I mean, you, you see something like that. And even as a fan back then, I'm like, okay, there's no way. Andre and Dusty would win these titles. They're, the titles are too insignificant for these two, you know, two of the, the elite stars in the business and, and watch through everyone a curveball and had them win the tournament. That and you've seen it a million times where they put together some super team and they end up having some kind of friction in the middle of the match and that ends up leading into a match between those two. It's yeah. WWF booking 101. They've been doing it for about 30 years. Exactly. And then the most recent time they did it was really enjoyable with The Rock and Mick Foley. I got to go back and watch that stuff someday. Uh, Okay. And uh, they beat Tom Shaft and uh, Carl Cox. Uh, What what was the deal with Tom Shaft? Everything I've seen of him, he looks terrible. Uh, Tom Boogaloo Shaft, he was just kind of a mid-card guy down in the South. I, I don't know of him. I think he got a little bit of a push for Culkin, but that's about it. This match looks great. Quarterfinal, Jack and Jerry Briscoe against Ricky Fields and Buzz Sawyer. Okay, now this is not Buzz, 83 Buzz. Okay, I always give Tom, I always give Tommy you know, credit for in 80-81 that he was really good. Buzz was really good in 79. Uh, he was young, had all his hair. He did not he – looked, he looked 15 years younger. He looked a bit like, – I could see him with Ricky Fields. That looks like a fun team because Fields was good too. Fields is great. He listens to this podcast. Oh, you didn't know I, this? I spoke well of him. I you did, did not. not know this? He is like, like my new favorite wrestler. Yeah, he's part they, of the Facebook group, and he had comments on our most recent show. Ricky, we'd love to have you on as a guest sometime. Hint, hint. Absolutely. absolutely. I, I, I saw clips of him with his, uh, I want to say it's from like 71, 72, with his brother on some early um, Gulf Coast stuff, I think it was. And, oh, it was fantastic. I mean, just really fast. But I could yeah. see these two being actually a pretty good team back then because Buzz Buzz could move and he had really, really crisp kind of a uh, uh, you know again he's not the guy you saw in '83 he's much much better back then. 
Yeah, he was. He was he was a really good athlete. He was one of the, from my understanding, he was one of the best uh, middleweight wrestlers in his high school, and he just quit high school because he wanted to be a pro wrestler and didn't care about anything else. Well, I can see that just being a fantastic match. Austin Idol, mass superstar. They go over Tony Atlas and Ray Candy. I guess we're trying to get our guys over here, huh? To say the least, and Tony, I think Tony Atlas was on his way out because he had started. I think he had. I know he had already been on WWF TV by this point. Uh, are we sure? Okay, we're a hundred percent sure who took the pinfall here, right? Uh, I'm pretty sure that's going to be Mr. Ray Candy, who yeah. is might be best known as uh, Elijah Akeem Ambulakela on the uh, what was the name of that? The Zambui Express. Yes, I, and I believe I've heard the Zambui Express was called that because Jack Mulligan was incapable of saying Zamb- uh, Zimbabwe. <laughs> I've never heard that one before. I heard the tag team was put together when Eddie Graham was watching Akeem Olajuwon play for Houston in the 1983 basketball finals. This, yeah, so I, I heard it was supposed to be Zimbabwe thing. So, you know, I have no doubt that that's the way Eddie does stuff. Picks up ideas from everywhere, and uh, I can I I can only okay. I'm going to play a game. Guess this finish because I can only imagine Austin Idol versus the Masked Superstar with Bobby Heenan defeats Dusty Rhodes and Mr. Wrestling Two. Who the hell? What's your finish? You got four um, guys who don't take a lot of pinfalls. We're not sure if it's a pinfall or not, um, but I would guess that if it was, I mean, Dusty's Dusty would do pinfalls, but he's not doing it here. It's going to be, it's going to be too looking at the lights. But again, I'm not sure if that's a pinfall. So they, so already they've defeated Stan Hansen, Wahoo McDaniel, and Dusty Rhodes and Mr. Wrestling Two. Okay, and and uh, Tony Atlas, Ray Candy, Rhodes Two, and just to finish it off, to win the titles, we'll beat the Briscoe Brothers. Jack and Jerry yeah. Briscoe losing to Idol and Superstar. So what an amazing night Idol and Superstar had. How many one off how, just out of curiosity, how many one Hall of Famers did they just beat? Uh four absolute Hall of Famers. Mr. Wrestling two, he's not in the Hall of Fame, but he's like a fringe Hall of Famer. And then you have Jerry Briscoe, who you could argue is a Hall of Famer for his behind the scenes stuff in the yeah. WWF for the past thirty five years. And he was also a brilliant wrestler too. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, you know, people under, underrate, I think, his stuff with Pat Patterson back in, like, 98, 99. That was a really funny duo. So now you have a uh, – they were. Uh, now you have – again, this goes back to people just know how to get over. And those are two gentlemen who know how to get over whenever. Yes. Um, so we have three other matches. Mr. Wrestling 2 defeated the fake Mr. Mr. Wrestling 2. This is brilliant. Oh, yeah. This Having is a- Having a dark Mr. Wrestling 2 should have been done every three or four years. Well, the reason, because first of all, 2 is in Mid South right now when Joe Powell goes under the hood as the fake Wrestling 2. So you just get an extra three, two months or whatever of free Wrestling 2 because the actual guy's coming back and then you could have a few between them second he walks in the door. Oh, it's yeah. perfect. What, yeah. what a brilliant, I'm with you. They should have done this every time he left. 
<laughs> I, I agree with you. This And this is why I always say, why are you putting Paul Jones under a mask and calling him Mr. Florida? Jim Powell could have been Mr. Florida, and you could have had Paul Jones too. Why are you putting Rocky Johnson under a mask and calling him Sweet Ebony Diamond? We could have put Jim Powell under the mask, and you would have Rocky Johnson as well. I, that never That's why it never made sense to me. It's like getting a free Mr. Wrestling 2 for like two months. Yes. Because everyone thinks that's actual wrestling too. Right. And then you exactly. It's perfect. Ah, oh, just brilliant. Uh, Tommy Rich defeats Bobby Heening. Do you think there was blood steel cage match? <laughs> I know there was blood because I've seen photos of this match. Um, the, I should I say, do you say- think there was a transfusion? <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> I think it was the March 1980 edition of Inside Wrestling that had the cover story of why Georgia fans, oh, you know, why AWA fans hate Tommy Rich. And they referenced this match, and it's because Tommy Rich sent Bobby Heenan packing, and Bobby had to go back to the AWA. And our main event. The bizarro team of all time. I still I still can't get over these guys. I remember when I first – I never saw them as a team. I just saw when they broke up because that was like the first show I got of the uh, of Crockett when mm-hmm. he came on TBS was when they broke up. Uh, it's good. The whole angle is magnificent. Anyway. Yes, it was. So I guess this is the first time. Only for some bizarre reason picks Thunderbolt as his partner when he goes in this face turn. And again, it's the weirdest team ever. And it's against Ernie Ladd and Ivan Koloff, which is the second weirdest team ever. With the, um, I guess Ivan was the uh, Ivan was the um, mystery partner in a lights out, no DQ, no time limit match. I love lights out matches. Yeah, I love the concept of them because it's it's the promotions way of saying, okay, we have nothing to do with this. We turn off the lights, the show's over, but wait, the lights come back on and these guys are settling their personal differences. I am used to Ernie Ladd and Ivan Koloff teaming up because I know they teamed up in the old IWA and in 76, they teamed up a few times in the WWF, so it didn't blow my mind too much. I'm just picturing the promos between the two of them with, you know, you have Ernie talking on the side of his neck. And, you know, then I uh, you know, live into the motherland or something. Yeah, you just, I don't know. It's, a, it's like the idea of the, the, feud, the uh, promos between Ivan and Jimmy Valiant during their mini feud. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can see it. But anyway, um, Ole and Thunderbolt, I mean, it's weird that Thunderbolt kept coming back to Georgia because he would leave Georgia or get fired, whatever. I don't know what happened. He'd go work for outlaw promotions, and they kept bringing him back to Georgia, which I thought was really he weird. Was- he was popular. Yeah, uh, that that's yeah. Was he still popular in '79 though? Maybe if someone who was around Georgia around then could let us know via the Facebook group, uh, that would be really helpful. They're they're bringing him back. I, I have I have a feeling he may have had kind of a Jimmy Valiant vibe down in uh, like Memphis and Mid Atlantic, where because I mean, if he's he he has like he has this you know as you said he can get himself out of town in certain places, but they keep bringing them back. And this is seventy nine. They bring him back in the early eighties. They bring him back in the mid eighties. I mean, obviously the guys has to be getting over. Me, I don't know. When I saw him in nineteen eighty four, when he came back. Um, when, when Georgia first got that 605 show, I mean, this guy was high unintentional comedy. 
Um, I think I've mentioned this before, but Jimmy Hart comes out and he throws the greatest shoot line ever at Thunderbolt Noli when he says, this is 1984, not 1954. And Oli and Thunderbolt are sitting there looking like a couple of guys from 1954. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, Oli, well, that was kind of Oli's charm. He always looked like he was from 1954. That was kind of the <laughs> bit. He was he was the perpetual guy yelling at traffic to slow down outside the you know outside in his front yard. Yeah. So buggies. Exactly. Uh, but I mean, yeah, no Thunderbolt by 85. It was that's one. But that's what I'm saying though. There must have been. We watched Jimmy Valiant. We're like, I have no idea. But I will. I will. The next comment I'm going to say is that uh, Valiant got over in Memphis. He got over in uh, the Carolinas for a long, long time. Yes, and I'm guessing the same thing happened with Thunderbolt because if you're going to keep bringing them back and you're going to keep complaining about them, then there, there must be a reason to keep bringing them back. As far as I know, this was the, his last run in Georgia until 1984 when Ole was absolutely desperate for any kind of talent. I don't I don't remember. I got CBS starting like the middle of 1981. I didn't see him once. So we're missing about well, maybe. Maybe We're missing about two years here, but I don't think he was back in Georgia. As a matter of fact, I now remember in 1981, he was part of a outlaw group in Georgia that was using both he and Chief J. Strongbow. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. OK, OK, uh, maybe you you that. Um, but no, again, uh, OK, but nonetheless, we will ask our friends from uh, Georgia and another reason to go check out the Facebook page. There and if, go. by the way, if you're listening and you're a friend from Georgia, feel free to sign the Facebook page and comment on just that. There you go. Off to Florida, the 22nd Jacksonville Veterans Memorial Coliseum, a beautiful arena. Uh, and how, how was Thanksgiving in Florida? Was it a big, big deal or? As far as I know, it it was not. It um, I mean, I got Florida on cable in 1980 and 1981, and I don't remember them making a big deal about the Thanksgiving night show um, at all. I don't remember the magazines making a big deal about it like they did in Atlanta. Uh, but I mean, nonetheless, this is uh, not a bad card. Uh, we start off with the Super Destroyer beating Bubba Douglas. Now, this Bubba Douglas is not. Just for clarification purposes, Big Bubba, this is uh, um, Andrew Douglas, who was a uh, kind of a feature a bit in Florida. Yeah, he was a homesteader in Florida, you know, a popular undercard guy. Super Destroyer is Scott Irwin, yep. uh, who actually had a pretty cool gimmick. Uh, they would say he was from Parts Unknown, and, he, and he'd be like, no, I'm not from Parts Unknown. I'm from the United States of America. And I always got a, I always got a kick out of that for some reason. He would go to uh, – I think this was the start of this gimmick, and Scott unfortunately tragically died very young. Um, but uh, this was the start of this gimmick, I believe, and he would go on to Georgia and make a very good tag team with the magnificent Bill Eady, the king of the masked men, uh, the masked superstar. Yeah, he got um – I'm sorry, uh, Scott Irwin got brain cancer, and he, yeah. it, you know, it didn't take very long from you know being diagnosed with it for unfortunately his passing. Uh, okay, uh, we have the uh, next up. Uh, let me just uh, okay. So a quick uh, digression on this: we have a two-on-one handicap match: Leroy Brown defeating Don Serrano and Raul Mata. I'm interested in how different areas kind of use the handicap match because as we were always exposed to it in the Northeast, it was some guy you need to get over against two 
enhancement talent guys, and they wipe them both out at the same time. Now, if you go to St. Louis, you see the mat. We, we put up a match on the Facebook page, which was, I believe, Harley Race against Johnny Valentine and Jack Briscoe in a handicap match. And from what I had heard, that this was common because they would end up having it's a way to guy to have the guy who's about to take the pin loss really not lose any heat, but start a feud with one of the two guys, which is interesting. I didn't even thought of that. Um, is there a special way they did it here? They, there was a special way they did it here, and it was always really annoying. It was supposed they would tell you before the match that the the handicap the, the the two guys who are acting as a team are supposed to tag in and out. That happened literally zero percent of the time. That both guys would just be it would be one big guy, whether it be Hulk Hogan or Ivan Putski, just beating up two guys at once. And if you're one of those two guys who can't take on. Ivan Putski or whoever with another guy on your side, then what good are you? You're, you know what I'm saying? Like this guy obviously does not belong in the wrestling business if he's this bad at his job, but that never stopped the WWF. Okay. Now I just noticed what could be considered uh, kind of an amazement here. Um, uh, next up, we have Jack and Jerry Briscoe against Killer Khan and Mr. Hito. Um, wasn't this match uh, – weren't they in Georgia? I guess one was a matinee. Uh, it's possible that one was a matinee, and it would very likely be this one. It's also po- – uh, Jacksonville's not that far from Atlanta, so you could make the drive. It's also possible that there could, just could be an error in the result. But I want to go back and talk about handicap matches for a second. I just oh, thought sure. of this. Southwest Championship Wrestling, for whatever reason, loved having these. Like in the WWF, it would usually be, you know, okay, Andre the Giants in a handicap match, uh, Blackjack Mulligan. It's a really big guy. They'd have guys like Tully Blanchard in handicap matches. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making that up. They had Tully Blanchard in a handicap yep. match more than once. You bet. You bet. Oh, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, you would, and down in Tennessee. You would often see this where you would bring someone in and have them in against the Wright brothers. And I remember I asked Bo about this once. I was like, wow, that, that's your most overheeled team, and you would have them take a loss in a handicap match? And he's like, that's how over they were. It didn't matter. Yeah, it, I mean, everything depends on the wrestler and the territory. And the more exactly. I look at this card, the more I'm convinced this, this was a matinee, and everyone who was on both shows just drove up to Atlanta. Yeah, it's uh, – can you imagine a matinee on Thanksgiving? Yeah, really? That's even more brutal. Uh, I mean it doesn't say how well this show drew, but I mean yeah. I'll get more into this with kind of my final point in this show. But yeah, you're right. I mean having a wrestling show on Thanksgiving afternoon, come on. And what do you think of Leroy Brown before we leave that match? Um. I I liked him when he was in Florida, managed by Sir Oliver Humberdink. Um, then they gave him this weird construction worker gimmick in Georgia. Um, this is 81, and I absolutely hated it. But overall, Leroy Brown, he wasn't that good in the ring. I know he had some health problems, uh, but I'm surprised he never made it to the WWF because he'd be a perfect guy to do a one-and-done with Bob Backlund and then like a one-off match against Andre the Giant. Oh, I think you could do three with him. I love him. Uh, I even with the, I knew that face thing with the the construction hat deal was goofy. He even kind of got that over because as a face, he's tough as a face because he's a crazy heel. But as a, it was funny that character, he would just 
someone would threat, you know, threaten him, and the baby face would be like, "Well, I don't want to interrupt." You know, Leroy was just like, "Okay, let's go." And he was—I mean, I know he wasn't great in the ring, but he was quick, and he did a good big man's offense. Yes, uh, you know, he he played big. If you have a guy like, say, um, Dream Machine, who's a fine promo, but Dream Machine, despite the fact of being high two hundreds, near three hundred, would never really played big. I thought. Leroy um, did when you, when you were in with you knew you were in with a big guy. No, you're right. He did good big man stuff, and he he did the you know the the bad dude from Chicago gimmick, and I thought he did that really well, which has probably had something to do with why I hate the construction worker Southern guy gimmick so much. Yeah, it's like Stan. It's like it's like okay, I guess that works, but you can use him in this way, and it's much much better. I, I yeah. He's a He's better, way heel. better heel. All right. Absolutely. And we have a reappearance of the Southern Heavyweight Championship, which would kind of go in and out in Florida, uh, depending on whether they need it or not. Uh, was there a backstory behind this coming back? Do you know of? Uh, this particular match, none that I know of. Oh, I, mean, I meant the, the the belt because the south the southern belt the Florida was the mainstay, but the southern would kind of reappear and disappear depending on whether they needed it or not. Yeah, they did that with so the we, TV title too. They did it with yeah. the international title. Just Florida, as great as that promotion was, they couldn't keep their title straight. And you have uh, Sweet Brown Sugar, who is, I believe, Skip Young, who's getting a big push here. Yeah. Uh, against uh, yeah. It, Florida is really pushing some young guys here. They're kind of like freshening up some talent. You're noticing like we're about to see Manny Fernandez in a bit, who is having just at the beginning of a monster run here. Yeah, uh, Sweet Brown Sugar, it was funny. I mean, there were, as a quote-unquote mark that I was, two wrestlers that you couldn't I – mean, you put them under a mask. It doesn't matter. You know exactly who they are. One of them was Sweet Brown Sugar, who placed in Pro Wrestling Illustrated Rookie of the Year uh, in 77 as Skip Young, and then again in 79 as Sweet Brown Sugar, which kind of made me laugh a little bit when I was a kid. And then Blackjack Mulligan with the U.S. MC t- uh, tattoo when he was one of the machines. Yeah, and if you think if you can't picture Skip physically, think like Ahmed Johnson. I it mean, just jacked. Yeah, it wasn't just physically. He has a he had a glass eye, which he couldn't hide with oh. the mask. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. And it was just totally obvious it was him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. So, um, and again, we have Manny coming up with Bugsy McGraw. Uh, Manny, Manny is so good here. Yeah, Manny looked like a a future star that was about to happen. It kind of did, but to a lesser extent than I thought. Um, I I mentioned this recently. I had never heard of Manny Fernandez before he won the Florida Heavyweight Championship. And then we have Bugsy McGraw make in the beginning of what was a major comeback. I think he had been out of the country for like two or three years, and I figured he just retired or vanished, and here he is in Florida getting a big push. He had a main event in uh, Mad Square Garden, didn't he? Um, okay. He had a – this is kind of a sad story. He had a main event in Madison Square Garden. It was scheduled for the end of 1975. It was supposed to be Bruno San Martino against Bugsy McGraw, and the tickets were selling so poorly that they inserted Lou Albano in the main event. It was Bugsy McGraw. It turned into Bugsy McGraw and Lou Albano against Bruno San Martino. Bugsy's another good example of a guy who never seemed to play big. Because he was a huge guy. Yes. But, I mean, he never he never seemed like that almost uh, – I mean, he was a uh, – Leroy was a little bigger than he was, but not much. 
No, Bugsy, I think, was like a legit 6'4 and 290-300. Yeah, and I mean, he just didn't seem to have that. He had an offense that reminded me a lot of the Dream Machine. Uh, you he know what? That's a good point. He didn't seem as intimidating as he should have been. Yeah, Sergeant Slaughter's like that, except he, he, he didn't play to his to his how big he was, but he was great anyway. But he was such a brilliant bumper, he made up for it. Good point. And, okay, here's a fun team. Well, first of all, we have Steve Kern and Mike Graham. Is this Graham's best team, Kern and Graham? I, oh, definitely, yes. Yeah, I mean, him and Sullivan was very good, too. But And him and Eddie, of course. But, yeah, his, uh, I love Steve. Uh, I've sung Steve's praises many times. And they just – they had a nice kind of mesh here of just two guys who are, you know – and they they – these guys deserve to be pushed to the top of the tag team. This was a very good tag team. It was. It was like uh, Florida's version of Tony Gurria and Larry Zabisco, except they were way, way better. Just two guys who homesteaded and found themselves teaming together a lot, breaking up, and then getting back together again. Like who? I, what are you doing to me here? Version. A well, way better version. Way better version. Uh, uh, both guys could go. I, I know Mike takes crap, but this is this is a team you push. And they had a fantastic. They had a. I want to say it was in the may have been a year or so before this. They had a great bit with the Briscoes, uh, where the Briscoes were kind of playing around with being heels a little bit. Yes, kind of like they would end up doing with uh, Jay Young um, with uh, Young Blood and Steamboat a few years later. But it, it was just tremendous work. And also, Steve was really over. When was the Roop feud with him? Uh, 1976, I believe, was when Bob Roop made the remark about Steve's dad, who was legit yep. a uh, a prisoner of war in Vietnam, and Roop came out and said something snide about it, and that's what started it. They Steve asked his dad about this at the beforehand, obviously, to make sure it was okay with him, and he said, "Son, there is nothing after what I've been through. There is nothing you're going to do that's going to bother yeah. me." Exactly. So let's talk about the Blonde Bombers, Brian St. John and Stan Lane. I mean, one of these, you know, one of these guys is not like the other. Someone was the Genetti of this tag team. And it surprised me because when I first saw them in the magazines, I'm like, you know, they they seem to have it all. They seem to have charisma, looks, uh, you know, they, they meshed well together. I've seen the tag team and they were a good team. I don't know why Brian St. John never made it in the business. The push, because if they want to push you in Florida, the way they do it is they have you go over Eddie Graham and Ray Stevens for the championships. I mean, talk about a couple of all-stars that we just you know went through in Georgia. If you want to get somebody over in Florida, you put them over Eddie, Eddie Graham. And yeah, Eddie totally. obviously volunteered to do this, so he clearly saw a lot in this team. Now, I wonder – you know, you, you said that I never really thought about this before, but Eddie Graham – I mean, I, I've seen Florida TV from him from, from 79. He clearly comes across as a bit of an old man. And considering that Mike, I think Mike started in 71. So he's old enough to have a kid that's been wrestling for eight years now. They, I mean, they, we've talked about this. They never talked about anyone's age. But you got to stop and do the math and be like, wow, he's there, Bruno. old. Nope, he's there, Bruno. It doesn't matter. Okay, I, I you it's know Jackie, I never it's got like that. Jackie Fargo in Memphis. He he is just kind of that. It's Eddie Graham. Okay, you know it's uh, that, that's how I always felt about it. It was one of those guys where the age didn't really matter. Like Fargo in Memphis, like Bruno in New York, like you know to a lesser extent the Sheik, or or better yet, no, um, oh, the Brooks are in uh, Indianapolis. Vergania might be the best example. Yeah, Vergania, Nick. 
Bockwinkle, even though he was still great at the end. But I mean, the guys are so you hang on to them so much from your childhood and growing up that you just won't let them age. And I have a feeling that's the way it was with Eddie. I mean, you know, again, I'm looking at it as an outsider looking in. I mean, 79, I'm like, okay, Eddie Graham is, you know, obviously he's kind of old at this point. But, yeah, I I didn't grow up in Florida. How how big of a deal would it be to pin Bruno in 1986 in the center of the ring in Madison Square Garden? Um, You know what? It – it, it, I, I think you know what I think it would have reflected more poorly on Bruno than well for the opponent because I think people would have looked at it as okay Bruno has overstayed his career maybe but it still would have had an effect I still think it would have, in New York it would have had an effect because those people were just Bruno was their guy yeah, so no matter Boston. what uh, yeah uh, to a lesser extent in Boston yeah but um, it was it, it. Some some guys are just able to transcend that bear. It was like we were talking the other day that that's the true mark of greatness is that if you could be great to various generations of people, that that kind of difference in generation doesn't matter to you. You know what? It, it's funny how different WWF in Florida was because they'd have Eddie go, Eddie Graham go out there and do jobs. They would go out there and they would go out there and do angles where the heels beat him up in like 82 when Kendo Nagasaki did it. Bruno, I don't know if he wouldn't do it or they just wouldn't let him do it, but I think Bruno going out there and and losing to say a Hercules Hernandez or a Rick Rude, I think people would just been like, "Oh, Bruno, you stayed too long." I think this is different down. This may be one of those things that's different down south. It's like what I was telling you about the rights when I was like, how could you have them lose to one guy? And Bo was like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. They made their bones. If you're in the south, from what I gather from watching enough of this and hearing these guys, is that once you get over in these certain places, you stay over forever. That's why in Memphis, you can still have Dundee and Lawler now, and you're going to draw 2,000 people. No, no, I, I, oh my, I, wait a minute. Did they really, you know what? Okay. I can see that because it's less of a match and more of a convention type thing where you're really there to get your picture taken but with Jerry Wall or Bill Dundee. But still, it's just, it's the vibe. It's that you're bringing yourself back to your childhood. It's these guys had such an impact on these people when they were young. You don't want to let it go. Not true. I mean, and you know what? It's pro wrestling. You can get away with it. I mean, imagine if we had Tom Brady like out there playing quarterback when he was older than 40, he'd make a fool of himself. Yeah, no. If you want to get somebody over in Florida, you're sending Eddie out there because that that will have an impact on them. And if nothing else, they'll be like, OK, this is serious, you know, because it's not something, you know, it's Eddie's not inserting himself into an angle unless he's something he's convinced is going to work. I can see that. All right, let's do the Greensboro card. Now, this will be our second to last one. This is our last one from 1979. We got a let's um, first of all, we have SD Jones down there. How did SD do down there? He was he about the same as the WWF, to be honest with you, about about the same card position, jobber to the stars sort of thing. He's one of these guys I keep looking at like, why not? He always, I don't know, he had a nice, like, a, like not, not a superstar guy, but, you know, like an intercontinental type level guy, maybe in, you know, WCW, like a TV title level guy. I mean, he could always do a decent match. Uh, he wasn't that good in the ring. I think I he, he was could okay. Have. In, uh, let, let me rephrase that. In the 70s, I thought he was okay. 
All right, I, I can go along with that. I, I think Intercontinental is a little bit, a little bit what's the word? Uh, I, I, oh, I don't mean holding it. I mean having him get a couple shots, but I mean giving him a decent push. Is, let's put it this way: giving him some legitimacy. No, I, I could see it. I mean, in 81, I kind of thought he and Tony Atlas were winning the WWF tag team titles. But the, the opener was Steve Muslin against Frank Monty. Frank Monty's one of those guys I, I never understood how he never got over anywhere. Steve Muslin is best known as Steve Travis in the WWF, who got a huge push here in 1979. And somehow they just like cut that push off right in the middle. It made no sense. And you have a $7,500 Battle Royal. What an odd number. Yeah, really. You know what? It might have been one of those deals where the promoter puts up X amount for every amount that the wrestler puts in, and it just added up to $7,500. But you're right. I didn't think of that. It reminded me of one of these shows. It was one of the old ghoulish shows. And I I, I remember there was an announcer. I forgot what it was, but it was some Battle Royal for $500. And that was like the announced winnings. And he had, like one guy hit another guy. At some point, the announcer goes, you just never know what a male do for 500 bucks. You know and what? Though? That was a lot of money back then. And I think I think the fans can relate to $500 more than they can to a million. I mean, I once saw a, um, a Gulf Coast show from, I want to say, 70 or 71, and they find Cowboy Bob Kelly $25. And I kind of laughed. I'm like, you know what? That makes sense. For something that kind of offense. But you bring up a very good point here because this is a del- this looks like it's a simple thing. This is a very delicate piece of business because if you go too low, then they're like, oh, just stop. Cheap, you know. But on the other hand, if you come rolling out like $50 million challenge, you yeah. know, the- you look foolish again. So, I mean, you have to kind of find the right number, and that number is going to vary depending on where you're doing the show. So, what was the story about the time Austin Idol cashed the actual cash the check? Yeah, he they had the jumbo size check, and he just brought it to the bank and cashed it and got the hell out. Two quick things about Battle Royal money. I went to an indie show in 1987, and there were probably, uh, I'm going to say, 250 people there where they advertised a $20,000 Battle Royal, and that was just ridiculous. But I like this Battle Royal number because in 1979, $7,500 would buy you a nice car a nice new car so you, uh, 70, once again you can a person can relate to that seventy five hundred dollars is a year's salary for some people in yes. 1979 depending on where you are um but we have in this we have some interesting names here uh has andre ever lost a battle royal that we know of yeah he definitely has he lost one in the awa um he definitely has but i mean if if there's a battle royal and andre's in it he is the heavy favorite. Yeah. Uh, you also have Billy Starr, uh, who oh, – I'm going to get myself into trouble here. I I want to say he was one of the medics at one point way back. Uh, he was definitely on, the, on one of those famous mass teams. Uh, Bob Marcus, who mm, – Bru Bernard. Is it that Bru Bernard? Oh, yeah. Bruce Bernard was an older man working the the very end of his career in the mid-Atlantic area. Now, here's an interesting match. The next match, Ray Stevens and Jim Brunzel going 27 minutes with Jim Brunzel losing the mid-Atlantic title to Ray Stevens. I would bet real money this was an excellent match. 
Jim was getting a crazy good, a crazy push right here. Nick, I, 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 we talked about this before. We think uh, um, Nick was uh, Bockwinkle put in a good word for him, possibly. But he walked in. He got the Magnum push before Magnum. Every match was three drop kicks, pin. Three drop kicks, pin to start off with. And I could see Ray, you know, taking care of his guy here. Oh, absolutely. I think Jim was on his way back to the AWA at this point. I think his and, push yeah, he was. And Ray would have already been familiar with Jim because Ray and uh, Ray and Nick would have had several matches against the high flyers, Jim and uh, Greg. And uh, Stevenson Patterson as well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I agree with you. That should have been an outstanding match. And I love Ray Stevens anyway. Now, talk about matches that probably were not un- <laughs> were not incredible. Uh, Blackjack Mulligan in a Texas street fight defeats Big John Studd. Uh, John Studd, once read an interview with him, it was a, a shoot interview. He said he would tell his family, this is after he retired, you know, look around, look at the nice house you have, look at the nice things you have. Thank Blackjack Mulligan and Andre the Giant for all of this. Absolutely. Between this and between his great feud in the WWF. But I, uh, Jack is a great presence. He's a great promo. He's awesome to watch walk into the ring. Oh, I don't see it in the ring, though. And I've watched. I don't get it. I, I, I don't know. The, the, the punches are bad. Um, like any kind of these tough matches. I don't know. I just don't. Am I missing? What am I missing? Nothing. Um, Blackjack Mulligan, before I got the Observer, before I knew what work rate was, okay, Blackjack Mulligan would get in the ring during his WWF 1982 run, and I would be like, oh my god, this guy stinks. And the last one we have is Snooker versus Mr. Wrestling. Yeah, that's got to be Tim Woods, and... This has got to be oh, until Ole blew the dust off him in 83. This has got to be just about one of his. Uh, wait a minute. He had a little bit of a comeback in 1980, but Tim Woods was near the end of the road here. So probably him going. I think I think Snooker was the I know Snooker was the United States champion at this point. So him getting a run at the top, you know, is probably a going away present for him. And beating Tim Woods is a big deal whenever it happens in the Carolinas. Uh, you had asked me to mention by the end of this show to mention uh, for some bizarre reason the 22nd of November 1989 at the River Center in St. Paul, Minnesota. Why yeah. am I mentioning this? Well, number one, it's 30 years. Uh, you know, instead of doing 79, we're doing 89. It's at the 30 year uh, mark. Um, and here's the thing. It wasn't at the River Center. I looked it up. The River Center was built in 1999, so it's probably in the old St. Paul um, Auditorium. Uh, and I'll, I'll just run the results really fast. Tugboat over Barry Horowitz, Merrick Martell over Bruce Beefcake, Powers of Pain over Bushwhackers, uh, Dino Bravo over Jimmy Snuka, uh, WWF World's Heavyweight Title Match, Mr. Perfect, uh, the area's own Kurt Henning against defeated Hulk Hogan by Countout, Ronnie Garvin over Greg Valentine, the genius Lenny Poffo over Mark Young, and then Jake Roberts over Ted DiBiase by disqualification. This drew 3,700 fans. And here's the point I'd like to make. In 1988, uh, JCP got bought out by, you know, Ted Turner and his company. And, you know, 
people immediately, especially those in the business, were like, oh, my God, we're owned by a corporation now. Wrestling is going to be corporate. Everything's going to stink. This is one time I disagree because you don't have an NWA show. I don't have an NWA show that that I can say, oh, well, the NWA ran this because they just gave the guys the night off and, and let them spend Thanksgiving with their families as opposed to sending them on the road on Thanksgiving night for this absolutely purposeless show, Sean. Yes, of course. I mean, I, again, this is why they weren't that big of a deal in the Northeast. Um, and uh, I, I, I do want to mention one match. We have a couple other cards here. Most of them aren't particularly, you know. Um, let's see what else we have. Uh, the other cards uh, again, we're not gonna have to, we have Amarillo, where your main is uh, you have another 14 man battle royal. You have the Funk Brothers there, Jim Dillon and Killer Carl Krupp. Uh, you have, and again, yeah, this is the the Boys and Girls Club in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, which I guess if this is basically this is in the Berkshires, so yeah, it's it's I, way I guess it's a nice the vacation. other end. Of, yeah. of Massachusetts. This is not easy to get to. No. Especially correct. if it's like any kind of snow. But you have Backland uh, going over Sweet Hanson, who seems to be very popular in Western Massachusetts. Yeah. And again, Backland over Hanson, Tito Santana over Jimmy Valley, and Pat Patterson over Ted DiBiase. Larry Zabisco just got back against Moose Monroe, Hussein Arab against Jose Estrada. I wonder how lucky he was to be in the United States uh, when the uh, American ambassador got kidnapped and Revere and Rods go to a draw. But once again, I think this is like burned into Vince McMahon's brain that, you know, no, Bob, you can't just have Thanksgiving off. We have to send you to Pittsfield, Massachusetts, because that's just how many people you think you hear. Oh, I'll bet less than a thousand. Yeah. I was going to say no more than 2000. I'll bet, yeah, I'll bet it was, a, I mean, it's the Boys and Girls Club. I don't know how many people this this holds, but it's Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and it's Thanksgiving night. So, I mean, I guess that was my entire point, that the there was one good thing that came out of maybe a fresh new look at wrestling. It's like, no, there's really no need to send the guys on the road to Pittsfield, Massachusetts, or to Minnesota for 3,000 people. Just let them stay home for one day and enjoy time with their families. And with that said, I hope everyone listening enjoys time with their families this coming Thursday, Thanksgiving. I know I will be. Um, I want to thank Sean for everything, all the work he does on this show. I would like to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for all of the great work he does making us making this podcast sound somewhat listenable. And I want to thank hope everyone has a great Thanksgiving coming up. Uh, this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. Go Vox.